It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Future of Media Explained podcast and this week we're talking about the future of royal reporting. Welcome back to the Future of Media Explained. I'm Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit and I'm here with Press Gazette editor-in-chief Dominic Ponsford. Hi Dom. Hi Charlotte, nice to be here. Great, turning the tables on you once more. This week you have interviewed Camilla Tomini about the future of royal reporting and some of her takes on all of the Harry and Meghan news and Harry's book, etc. You've become our accidental Harry correspondent at Press Gazette. How have you found it? It's been hard work. I've watched most of the Netflix series, although towards the end, I've got to say I did struggle to get through it. But I have read the whole book. You read it all in about 24 hours, didn't you? I did. I did skip some parts. No, that's understandable. So you are definitely the best person for the job to be talking about the media aspects of everything that's gone on. I mentioned Camilla. Do you want to tell us who she is and why you're talking to her in particular? She's really, I think, the best journalist you could think of to talk to about all this stuff. Because when she was at the Sunday Express back in 2016, she broke the scoop that uh, Harry was in a relationship with Meghan which was true. Then after that, she went to The Telegraph, where she remains as associate editor, politics and royals. And she also wrote the story, which has been much discussed, about Meghan and Kate falling out over bridesmaids' dresses and one or both of them ending up in tears. There were tears. Whose were they? We'll never know. Yeah, I think recollections vary. She's also just started a new weekly TV show on uh, GB News at 9.30 on Sundays. So she's in that sort of high-profile Sunday slot over at GB News doing political interviews. So she's a rising star as well. Yeah, she is a pretty big name. Lots of people find her column on the Telegraph and Must Read, I think. Mm. Let's get stuck in. Let's hear from her. What did you talk to her about? Well, we started off by getting stuck into this 2018 article she wrote about this falling out over the bridesmaid dresses because this gets a mention in Harry's book and he unkindly and inaccurately, I should also add, refers to Camilla as the unnamed journalist who always gets stuff wrong, which she would deny. So I just asked her about that, what it was like to appear in the book and what she had to say about it. 
No, I'm not named Dominic, so... I know, but I reckon anyone... anyone... Well, if you know who did the original story about bridesmaids' dresses and tears, then that would be me. It's funny, though, because I think he says to me that I was a royal correspondent that made him ill and was always wrong, failing to point out that I was the royal correspondent that first broke the story of him dating Meghan, which so far they're yet to deny. There's still time. And then also on tears, the recollections have always varied on that. It's an interesting one. My, I had to revisit the original feature I wrote, which was like 1,200 words in the Daily Telegraph of November 2018. And actually, if you read back on the article, which it seems perhaps Harry hasn't, it's really balanced and nuanced. It talks about a culture clash between two different women, Kate and Meghan, and it talks of tensions, but it attributes some blame to the Cambridge side, as they were then known, as well as the Sussexes. It points out at the time how well Meghan was getting on with Prince Charles, as he was then known. So it's actually a really balanced piece and doesn't necessarily apportion any blame on tears. It just talks about there having been tears at a bridesmaid dress fitting that Kate left in tears, quotes, unquote. So well, it was the sun that lifted it all the next day and then splashed it as Kate made Meghan cry. Yeah, I felt like a lot in his book, he sort of conflates lots of things together and uh, into something that made him upset. But like you say, it was the sun splash, Kate made Meghan cry, yeah. which I think was probably a little bit worse than your very nuanced piece, which doesn't even mention the anecdote in question until about halfway yes. through. It was about, uh, the headline was Kate and Meghan is the royal sisterhood at breaking point. Mm. And what's interesting about the book, of course, is he's claiming that we make everything up or we've fed it on a plate by the palace, which we can get onto in a moment if you want to. But actually what the book does is vindicate a lot of the royal reporting at the time because we were reporting of tensions. We were trying our damnedest to find out what on earth they were all about. And the Robert Jobson does a piece about a tiara row. I do a piece about bridesmaid row. And that is when it all happened. The couple themselves say on Netflix, everything changed after the wedding, as if to suggest that there was some kind of motivated agenda, that the palace changed everything. But you have to think about it like this. And it's a difficult one for journos because you can never discuss your sources and you don't ever want to even rule out sources because then that might identify sources. And I suppose if Harry knows anything of the press, then maybe he understands that. But I would humbly suggest that there are more sources that could brief on behaviour during a wedding than simply those that work at the palace or are involved in the palace. A lot of people involved in a wedding, aren't there? I guess he feels, as we're into that, we might as well get into that bit now. So he feels, well, why didn't they check things? They could, we could have talk, would have refuted that. or Because or, obviously now we know, or we believe, that it was Meghan who made Kate cry, was it? Is that what they're saying? He claims that Meghan was left in tears at the end of the day yes. because he was. she was also grappling, according to the book, with the fallout from her father, Thomas Markle, pulling out of the wedding at the last minute with the heart attack. Yeah. I'm saying I stand by my story, as I would, but also he kind of tends to want to homogenise all coverage as the same thing. They talk on the Netflix documentary about the press and then the paparazzi, both UK and US, and then magazines and then online publications and strange stories about avocados, which I never personally wrote, funnily mm. enough. And then Twitter trolling, like the British press is responsible for that. Harry did once confess to us that he read the comments at the bottom of Mail Online and <laughs> we all know that way madness lies. Yeah, very much. Um, so it's a curious one. Also, there's a bit of selective memory going on. Obviously, a lot of the coverage of Meghan particularly was effusive and supportive and congratulatory and wasn't she a breath of fresh air? I know because I wrote it. I think there's even a quote about her being a breath of fresh air from one of those pesky palace sources in the original Bridesmaid piece. Mm. And the other thing is, with regard to 
trying to correct things that are wrong. The only interaction I often get from the palace or used to get when I was a fully fledged royal editor were people trying to correct things they perceived as wrong. And it's they I think there was 28 months between the story that I wrote being published and then them going on Oprah and Meghan turning it on its head at any point at all. Anyone could have contacted me from their camp and said, this isn't right. And as we now know, because at the weekend, Bryony Gordon, my good colleague on The Telegraph and friend, has a good relationship with them. You know, they perhaps could have used her as a vehicle to get to me. I always worked well with Harry when we were on the beat. I remember when I broke the story of their relationship, I was a bit worried. That was 2016, October. And we went on a tour of the Caribbean with him about a month afterwards. I was worried, is he going to be a bit stroppy because I've broken the news of this great love and ruined Mm. their privacy. And actually, he was on such good form that tour and he was beckoning me in on jobs and wanting me to take notes on his thoughts on palm oil. And at another occasion, he met up with Rihanna and they did something on AIDS and HIV and he wanted somebody to cover it for broadcast. So again, I was asked by his then press secretary, Jason Knauf, who is now seemingly his nemesis, to come and cover it and share it with all the broadcasters. So it's funny, really. The yeah. how things change. We all had quite a good working relationship with him on Invictus and all the other stuff he did. Yeah. Anyway, wrong to say you, say you always got stuff wrong because it's quite a lot right, isn't it? Like all of it right, as far as we can tell. And you, cause you, and you said, uh, anyway, I think I, I don't think you, you didn't say that um, Megan made Kate cry. You just said Kate was in tears, didn't you? And, yeah. And then the son took that and ran with it. And yeah. Said that, but then the son piece was written by somebody who's now <laughs> quite a vocal Sussex cheerleader. Obviously, subsequent coverage of the fallout from Megxit, in inverted commas, and then I write a column in the paper and I go on telly and I think I'm pretty fair, to be honest. I try and give both sides. Yeah. But I note that the journalists who are singled out for criticism are those who haven't always given Harry and Meghan undiluted praise, but that's not our job. I think people misunderstand it, like we're mates with these people. Mm-hmm. I think Giles Brandreth, who was on telly with earlier today, said when it comes to the Raws, you never confuse friendliness for friendship and I wouldn't even say I got a degree of friendliness ironically from any of them but Harry he was quite friendly when he it's weird on one hand he'd say oh why are you all here and I don't like you and I don't want you on this job and then the other you'd get this sense that he was craving coverage but then he's a natural celebrity and William and Kate aren't in the sense that I think Meghan and Harry really enjoy the limelight to a certain extent Whereas William and Kate are naturally very introverted and shy. So that was an interesting dynamic from the beginning. So let's rewind a bit. So you started on the Hamel Hampstead Gazette. Yeah. So you've been out there in the salt mines, the regional oh, press. Yeah. Started <laughs> at the very beginning, yeah. good old Hamel Gazette, which was a paid for broadsheet when I started. Okay. And now, obviously, local newspapers have been denigrated, which is a but crying shame. Working for pennies, I'm sure. I think my first wage annually was 10 grand a year. Okay, which was nothing then. And (laughs) And nothing now. Nothing now. And then you joined the Sunday Express. And then it feels to me, and don't take this the wrong way, but I feel like you became an overnight success in 2016 after 15 years of, or after many years of, but you certainly came on my radar then because you had this amazing scoop. What, the scoop, yeah. Which which kind of really, I guess that must have been the most high high profile story you'd had. Yes, I think so. I've done some other good stuff. Sometimes you feel that, I think Lynn Barber said this once when she worked on the Sunday Express, she was writing exactly the same stuff that she went on to write for other newspapers, but yet nobody really saw it. And I don't say that to besmirch the Sunday Express because I had 
15 glorious years on that paper where it ended up being royal editor, political editor, columnist and leader writer because that was just the state of the resources. <laughs> and I had a great editor in Martin Townsend who I'm still close to who was a very much a champion of women in journalism. So the people he had under him and he recruited and then went on to better things. Tim Shipman, Caroline Wheeler, Kirsty Buchanan, loads of different people, Julia Hartley Brewer. So yeah, the Sunday Express was great, but I suppose it, when I moved to the Telegraph in 2018, stuff that I was always doing just got more projection, I would say. And you broke that great scoop of, of Harry's romance with Meghan, which yeah. we believe to be true. I think uh, so. <laughs> I think it's right rather than wrong, yes. <laughs> yeah, and then, so you were, you were, you've been on this story from the start, and then as, as, as we discussed at the beginning there, you had that story which turned out to be a bit controversial about this tears over bridesmaid dresses in 2018 for the Telegraph subsequently. What do you think about this idea that the press had it in for Meghan, which Harry seems to think, he seems to think, that everything that's like went saying, wrong. That's because... like saying the press has it in for the government if they attract negative publicity. I can only really speak for myself, obviously, but I don't. nobody really has it in or takes a position on anyone. You take a position on the information that you're given. So if there are positive stories, then you write positive things. Oh, Harry's done something amazing at Invictus. He's given this great speech. Isn't he a legend? How written so many pieces about him. He is truly on was truly impressive on royal jobs. Went on tours with him, saw him touring children's hospitals with profoundly disabled children, being so real, genuine and touchingly emotional with those kids, very much in the vein of his mother, his late mother. But equally, if we start hearing things that there are tensions or that have been roused with staff or that staff are leaving in swift succession, and if that had affected any other member of the royal family, by the way, we would have delved into it. But often journalism is surely about saying, look, everything is not quite as it seems here. I'm meant to be, I'm not doing the day-to-day -day royal reporting, which is go to the event on the Tuesday and write it up for the Wednesday. I'm providing insight analysis and trying to break exclusives. Therefore, it's not for me to write the headline. It's for me to explain the story behind the headline, which is what that original story was trying to do and what I am trying to do. You apply this, exactly the same principle to politics. Just because Boris Johnson used to be a columnist for The Telegraph doesn't mean that I'm going to look at a Boris Johnson story that's negative, be it about donations or party behaviour or <laughs> sexual impropriety, allegedly, or whatever, that I'm going to go, oh, no, I can't look at that because we're going to bite the hand that feeds us and we're a right-leaning paper. What are people thinking? As journos, we don't sit on stories. We take information, you get a nugget, and then you try and expand it and find out what's really going on. It's no, there's no bias in it. It's just, right, what's going on? We need to inform the readers. And from memory, it felt like the it was a sort of... People wanted a sort of fairy tale romance, didn't they, in a way? Or was a fairy it, that was, tale romance, yeah. wasn't it? They, it's still a fairy tale romance. He's clearly absolutely head over heels for this girl. The other thing, I think, which people forget, especially in the social media narrative, other opinions are available. If you love these two and you think, yeah, they've rebelled against a overprivileged, overentitled and suppressive institution, we don't like the monarchy, good for them for breaking away good for you. We had a newspaper at the weekend which had a one-on-one -on -one with Bryony and Harry in it and then it had me going through some of the forensic detail of what did cause the breakdown particularly in the relationship between Kate and Meghan and I did the column just about me being mentioned in the book but it's like you couldn't have a bigger 
plethora of opinion on the issue. That's what we're meant to be doing, isn't it? And people can then make their own minds up. I think that's what we're trying to do. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. So you're associate editor, politics and royals for The Telegraph. Yeah. And you said you did that at the Sunday Express as well. I was trying to think that not many people combine that, those two kind of patches. absolute madness. I think Andrew Pearce does a bit of it on the mail. He sometimes delves into royal waters, but he does a lot of politics as well. I don't... What happened was I was doing the royals from about 2005 when Charles and Camilla got married until Brexit happened. And you mentioned 2016 being a bit of a turning point. It was a turning point with regard to that Harry and Meghan scoop. But also for me, it was a turning point because when Brexit happened and because the Sunday Express was a Brexity paper... Martin, the editor, felt that we should double up on politics. And because I was naturally leave-leaning, he put me into the political team and then I deputised for Caroline Wheeler as political editor to just help out on that front. So I was doing a lot of Brexit stories, travelling a lot to places where, say, Nigel Farage was doing a rally and things. And that's how I branched into politics. And then, of course, you seem really... Well, I (laughs) do work quite hard and I am quite prolific, but if you're writing across two beats, then you're obviously getting double the amount in the paper often. What's harder then, politics or uh, royal Mm. reporting? Royal, this is the irony of the Harry claim, everything's handed on a plate. Jesus, if only. I don't think anything's ever been handed on a plate by the palace. Whereas when I went into Portcullis House for the first time, I just found it really funny. Like You're trying for years and years to get interviews or anything out of royals directly barely get any FaceTime with them. And then you go into Portcullis House and you're basically being mobbed by MPs wanting to tell you their innermost secrets within five seconds of a coffee. So that made me chuckle. There is a degree to which politicians are trying to desperately self-promote all the time, like celebrities, which makes those beats a bit easier than the royal beat, where it's like getting blood out of a stone half the time. So, back to Harry a bit. I read the book like you did, obviously, and I've got to say, a sort of human level, I felt sorry for the chap, and he obviously... He, feels, he obviously feels very tormented by media coverage. I think there, there was the issue of the paps, so the paps yeah. mobbing him, which he found stressful and upsetting. I think there's hacking, obviously, which he was a victim yeah. of at the News of the World and maybe elsewhere, which you can understand why he, you can understand why he's cheesed off about that. And there's, I think it's probably fair to say in the 90s and, no, and noughties, there's probably some other chicanery yeah. going on which he probably has a legitimate beef about but what, what did you think do you did you, did you feel I felt sorry got- for it I think his reaction to paparazzi taking photographs of his mother dying in a car in the Alma Tunnel in Paris you'd have to have a heart of stone not to completely sympathise and empathise came into the industry at the beginning of the noughties and then on to the nationals about 2003 I remember the hacking thing happening because I was on a royal tour I think with the Queen and I found it ironic because I didn't even know what the hell it was and I had to get someone to explain it to me. And at the time, I had a chuckle because I was struggling to access my own voicemail from abroad. I thought, what? Sorry, I didn't really know this went on. It's like a different era. That kind of 
80s, 90s, wedge your foot in the door and get the story at all cost wasn't really the way I was trained or have ever operated. If he's wanting to call out the nefarious tactics of the past, then I think that's completely fair enough. By the time I got into it, in fact, latterly, there is an irony that royal privacy has probably never been more respected. When I first started out, there would be a bit of a market for covert photography of, no, quite a lot of a market of covert photography of royals at, say, Polo. I think the line was drawn when Prince George was born with regard to you would never be running pap photos of Prince George at nursery or on a slide or something, quite rightly. And I'm a mum of three, so I'm also looking at all of this like a human being. I also lost my mum when I was young, so I can empathise on that level. But when he talks about them being hounded in the UK, uh, if he's talking about hounding being they were on the receiving end of some negative publicity, he might have a point. If he's talking about being hounded by paparazzi in the UK when they were together and married, I don't recognise that because as far as I could tell, there was no longer a market for pap photography the Duchess of Cambridge, as she was then known, helped with that. She did this thing where she started taking photographs of her own kids. They were so good, these photos, because they were taken from the personal album, that it actually cancelled and there was no market for pap snaps anymore. And then when they were like living in Frogmore or whatever, they just went around completely unbothered. You'd have got in really big trouble if you were, A, a photographer trying to get them on Windsor Great Park grounds. I know the Duke of York is papped a bit, but in his car, but maybe people think he's fair game. I don't know. But you wouldn't have got very far trying to run those sorts of images in national newspapers. So compared to Diana, in terms of pap problems, and that's why on Netflix they had to keep on using footage from other people's court cases or being chased by a pap, I believe, in, through the streets of America, a city in America. Yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, in the Netflix doc, I think there's a guy on a moped following them while they're dri- driving between two hotels or something. But it's not in the UK. No, I mean, it struck me reading the book that the bad stuff that happened in terms of press surveillance all seemed to happen in the US. Latterly, yes. I think he's got a legitimate complaint about why did we... Should they have done the whole cloisters thing? You'd never have that now, would you? William and Kate take the kids on a skiing holiday. We all turn up and do a press conference with them and start asking George questions. It seems a bit wrong these days. We've all moved on a bit. I think in the post-Leveson era... Times have changed. And on hacking, yeah, if his phone was hacked, I know there are new allegations, but sort of male group deny. Um, if, he, if his phone was hacked, that's deplorable. As you say, this, that era of paparazzi scrums is over, seemingly, in the UK. And, w- w- and the other thing that I wondered about is, why do other royals seem to handle it a lot better? And you don't sort of... I, don't, I might not read about Edward and Sophie from one year to the next or Princess Anne. They're very famous people, aren't they? That There's still interest in them, but they seem to... Princess Anne doesn't really have journos on her jobs. Yeah. The Wessexes do, but because there's a less of an appetite, it doesn't get staffed as much. You could argue that if anyone had a legitimate cause to have a beef with the press, it would be Sophie Wessex, right? Mm. After being duped by the fake shake into making indiscreet remarks about her nearest and dearest, which caused her a huge amount of embarrassment. Mm. But I interviewed the Wessexes a couple of years ago for the Telegraph magazine and they were saying <laughs> it's funny how people are now talking about us stepping up we've been doing this for 20 years and I thought that's fair play I've been on jobs with her actually I went to the Middle East with her on a job for a charity she was really cooperative and delightful and really easy to work with but then she was in PR so she gets it so I wonder where sort of royal reporting goes 
from here. One of the things he he has that he criticises is this royal rotor. Yeah. So the idea that there's a sort of inner group of reporters who take turns and share stuff. Yes. He seemed to. I think he seems to feel that he's described them as the PR arm of the palace in one breath, hmm. but then said that they also write stories that are negative about him and other royals. So it can't probably be both. Hmm. Obviously, the rotor is a practical thing. You go into a little hospital with the royals. You can't have every royal correspondent from every paper there because there just isn't room to manoeuvre. And so one person goes in and then shares the copy and one photographer goes in and shares the images with the rest of the pack. There is a degree of... um, expertise and knowledge like there is with any beat that you do with regard to contextualising jobs. But it's a mutually beneficial arrangement to make sure that the royals have coverage of their charitable endeavours in the paper and that the journalists can get up close and personal with people that they're writing about, which seems to make sense. But to call the press pack PR extension of the palace is a bit like saying that if you're on the crime beat that you're a PR arm of the Met or if you're on environment you're a PR arm of Greenpeace it's not right is it? And how do the how do you see the role the future of raw reporting shaking down when it comes to the way they deal with the press I think he probably has a point in it that it seems that the royals aren't anywhere near staffed up enough to cope with the size of their brand in terms mm. of the amount of interest they have. I might be wrong, though. But do you think there's anything that they, they can learn or the press can learn about? But if he wants to tear up the rule book, he's not really in a position to do it anymore because mm. he's not there. Yeah. So I think the king's attitude is more of the, and indeed it seems the Prince of Wales, is more of the never complain, never explain persuasion, that they take the rough with the smooth and they do their best to keep out of the papers for the wrong reasons and remain in them for the right. And I guess that for the royals, they, they have to keep their brand up, don't they? They want coverage, don't they? Because the legitimacy yeah. of the whole... Yeah, uh, I mean, I people of better place than me have commented on what it all means for the monarchy. It's not an abdication-style crisis, is it? It's a man who's very angry, letting off steam. I think from the polls' perspective, surveys are suggesting that Harry's approval rating has tanked in this country. Williams has been affected a bit but generally feelings towards the monarchy are pretty stable. I think it's more interesting that actually feelings towards the monarchy are still stable regardless of spare and everything. Following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, I was expecting a bit more of a kind of national nervous breakdown. And because so much other stuff has been happening post-pandemic and with cost of living crises here and three prime ministers in five minutes there, actually, I think the effect of the Queen's death has been nullified somewhat. I think given the given the sort of interest in spare and the interest in the death of the queen it doesn't feel like this is a the reader interest is diminishing is it i think readers are no, fascinated aren't but they? that's the funny thing i often <laughs> people are like why are you writing about this there's more important things to write about and i'm like i do also write on politics so i've got a little bit of a get out of jail free card there but equally i love it that people have read to the end of the article and then saying why are you writing about this you feel like <laughs> well, you've read the whole thing so clearly you're interested even if you don't like them or you've got an opinion about it all you can't help yourself And also, of course, the papers are reflecting public interest in a story that my my girlfriends are talking about stuff on WhatsApp, so that it's worth writing about. Yeah, I think... A certain level, a certain level as a journalist, you have a duty to write about the things which readers are interested in. Yeah. Don't you, otherwise, I know, but it's like Harry's got this thing of what comes first: public opinion informs the press, or the press informs public opinion. Probably a bit of both. I think so. So we're sort of near the end. I was going to ask you about a, my new GB news show. I was going to ask you about your new GB news show. Congratulations! Thank you. So you, you've always done a bit of broadcasting, haven't you? I've done quite a lot, really. I've been on this morning since about two thousand and seven. 
talking about the royals and then that's segued when they started doing the show earlier at 10 a.m they want people to come in and talk about the headlines and break them down for the viewer so i've been doing that pretty consistently then i had an lbc show which i did for a year which i really enjoyed and then this offer came up and i'm more predisposed to telly than radio and i think you can radio can be a bit impersonal and telly is a better vehicle for people to see what you're really like um and I guess they felt that I had this USP and that I'm across quite a few beats and hopefully <laughs> seem to know what I'm talking about. And so I just also quite excited at the notion of GB, really. I know it's had a shaky start and there's obviously issues with advertisers. But what I'm trying to do with that politics show over 90 minutes is give people some room to discuss things at length rather than a kind of Paxman-esque combative, I'm going to interrupt you after your first sentence and I'm going to bring you on my show and effectively make you feel like you're not a nice person because that's my job as a presenter. And I think the viewer wants a bit more time to listen to the arguments being made and also to have a difference of opinion that's agreeable. So much of the debate on social media particularly has become so toxic. There's a sense that free speech is being stifled and I think GB is doing something good. And it's not just some right-leaning thing. We're constantly trying to have an, uh, a debate between left and right, but also I've got this section on my show which is a debate between old and young. So I've got this item which we call Generation Gap, which I thought was interesting. I'm probably quite ideologically aligned to my dad, and yet sometimes he comes out with stuff and I'm like, Dad, what are you talking about? So I think that's quite an interesting side of debating things. And we're trying to give the politicians a bit with me in studio so that they can say what they want to say. Of course, I'm more than happy to grill them, but hopefully not impolitely. I had John Burko on at the weekend, which was an interesting interview. I don't, he's trying to rehabilitate his image after having been branded a serial liar and a serial bully. And I put <laughs> that to him as the first question. And I think people watch a good interview and they make their own minds up, really. <laughs> and like you say, GB News is, I think it's having a bit of a moment at the moment, isn't it? It's, it beats Sky News in the primetime ratings before Christmas, yeah. they, which was a hell of an achievement. Really I can tell you, you, my first show did very well, but I've just got the numbers in for yesterday's show. And actually, I think in three out of the six quarters, we beat Sky News in the viewers. Wow. That's so, good, isn't it? That's fantastic. For, for a standing start, I mean, that's good. I'm that's, happy with that. Yeah, it's fantastic. And do you find the politicians who aren't sympathetic with the sort of GB News's perceived slightly right of centre viewpoint are happy to go on? Or, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think actually Labour have been really happy to come on and cooperated really well. I had Peter Kyle, the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary, in yesterday in studio. He came in early to do a pre-record because he wanted to do it face to face. And I thought, brilliant. <laughs> Funny enough, a bit more ambivalence perhaps from the government side. I think they're missing a trick. You've got quite a lot, particularly for the Tories, you've got quite a lot of disaffected and depressed Tory voters and Brexiteers who are politically lost. And so I think it's shrewd from Labour to want to come on and naive if the Tories think that they're appealing to the people that they need to convince to win the next election to go on the likes of BBC and Sky when they get duffed up and not speak directly to their viewers via GB, to be honest. Yeah. And I guess, do they take the view that maybe some of those red wall voters or some of those disenfranchised people who switched off who've switched off from other channels are tuning in tuning into GB News that seems to be the perception certainly and you think when uh, who rates really highly Nigel Farage on the station obviously Dan Witten um, our start's been really positive we're up there in the highest ranked shows weirdly my content's pretty down the middle because we've got both sides on all the time yeah of course Farage is right leaning and so is Dan but the whole GB News thing is it's all leaning 
is leaning in all directions, having people on with different opinions, because actually the punters are sort of tired of not just being told what to think, but how to think. Look, thanks for all that. It's been great having you. A couple of final questions. Go on, give me a headline. You're going to sue. You're going to sue Prince Harry for saying you always get things wrong. I always can't. That way, madness lies. (laughs) Come on, everyone, myself included, in the past has got things wrong. He's got things wrong. Everybody involved in this sorry saga, I think, has got things wrong. No, I certainly wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I also, was... I think I, got, I hate you know, the, if the, as soon as the journalist becomes a story, then it's no longer a story. I always wonder that because because journalists never really get to defend themselves, do they? We just get everyone get all this abuse, but then I suppose we, get, we have. Yeah, a but we put it out. I don't object to that. I learned a very salient lesson when I was on the Gazette in Hemel Hempstead. You know, I completely cocked up this story about a cinema in. I'd got people's names wrong and there was this letter that came into the editor and it was just so awful. Like, yeah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I said to the editor, you're not going to publish this, are you? And he goes, of course I am. If you've got it wrong, then you're going to be shamed in the letters page. That was a good lesson. This is the thing. There is recourse to Ipso and the law if journalists get it wrong, and quite rightly. The last question I was going to ask you, just if you've got any sort of tips for aspiring uh reporters out there so you've your career has really been built on on, on some good scoops yeah which you is, can't beat scoops i just i imagine for a lot of people the idea of a, an editor saying right this has happened what's what's really going on when only a few very famous remote individuals actually know the truth for that a lot of people would find that very terrifying it's like well crikey how are we going to get to the bottom of this how do you um, do it what, i think you... by being straight i think there's this per- false perception that you get great things if you all subterfuge and cloak and dagger actually being pretty straight with people serves you quite well. I think looking after contacts when you don't need them so that you can rely on them when you do is a good tip. I think not being afraid. You've got to have quite a lot of courage in journalism these days. Social media is so out to abuse you for simply trying to get to the truth and to cancel you. You've got to have a very thick skin and you've got to be really determined. I mean, nothing happens overnight. I get lots of students of journalism or people wanting to get into the industry asking me for advice. And I often say, just keep at it, because you'll have a 100 kids who want to say they'd be a journalist and only one or two will ever do anything about it. And by going out in their local communities, trying to get stories, trying to sell them into the papers, doing their own podcasts, recording things, working for their local newspaper, working for their student newspaper in the summer holidays, you just got to get out there and do it. But any journalist of any level of experience, nothing beats scoops. You're so dispensable in journalism, really, like... Anyone can just write up stuff that you see on the press association or go to an event and write it up the next day. But if you can get stuff that other people can't, then that gives you a bit more longevity in this very cutthroat business, I'd say. Yeah. And as you say, getting those scoops is a long, it's a long game. It's not. Oh, yeah. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Look, congratulations, Camilla. Thanks very much for coming in. Can I give a final plug? I want to just say you can tune into my GB News show 9.30am on Sunday mornings. Brilliant. That's how shameless I am. No, go for it. It's necessary. So that was Camilla Tomini talking about royal reporting and that interview took place a week after the publication of Spare, Harry's book. Dom, as we said, you've done a lot of writing for Press Gazette about Harry and his relationship with the media now and you've even done a comment piece where you apologise to Harry on behalf of the media, although obviously lots of caveats about how not every journalist is this rotten apple and things like that. But in that, you came across as fairly sympathetic towards Harry. So I was wondering, after Camilla's insider account to you, how do you feel now? 
Well, I think it's fair to say, after reading the book, oh, a, l- a little bit, almost Team Harry, I wouldn't go that far, but I did feel um, he's had a hard time, he's a tormented soul, and you have to ha- have some uh, sympathy for him, especially when it comes to the nastiest stuff he's experienced, like the paparazzi packs and the phone hacking and all the rest of it. But I've got to say, having spoken to Camilla, I just think he really unfairly traduced her reputation and that of lots of other royal correspondents because they're just hard-working journalists doing their job. She's one of the top journalists in the country and he's lucky to have her in a way because if you read that original story she wrote about the falling out between Kate and Meghan, we now know it was completely on the money, wasn't it? They've totally fallen out. They've fallen out so much they don't even speak to each other. They're on other sides of the Atlantic. He may dispute sort of little details of it but I think on the whole she was, she's she been proved right. Yeah I think it was good to chat to her and just realise that I think journalists are doing their best to get to the bottom of a story that a lot of people are interested in and that there is public interest in covering as well. It's interesting you mentioned about how lots of the story and other stories turned out to be true. That was something that the former Mail Online editor Martin Clark has written about this week as well saying that although he might have had lots of quibbles Harry that is overalls it pretty much all of it's true like the stuff that he complained about from when he was at school like about the drugs it was true like editors were getting in touch because it was true yeah and it is interesting what she had to say about the fact that in recent years they've not been hounded by paparazzi Harry and Meghan they might have had a lot of stories written about them and they might not have agreed with all of them, but um, the idea that they've been hounded by paps in recent years is just not not true. So, Dom, after that brilliant interview, what is your big take-home that you'd like people to remember? I think my big take-home was it takes a long time to be an overnight success. Camilla put in the years on the Hemel Hempstead Gazette, 15 years on the Sunday Express, when it was probably the least glamorous or one of the least glamorous titles on Fleet Street unloved over the years yeah she's put and she's put the graft in and when she when you ask her what the secret is of being a good reporter it's what um lots of people say to me when I ask them that it's definitely not being pushy it's not being brash it's none of the things that the general public think it is it's actually just being really straightforward plausible polite tenacious hard-working which is what she is I think Lots of words for all of us journalists to live by. (laughs) Exactly. That was this week's Future of Media Explained with me, Charlotte Tovett, and Dominic Ponsford and produced by Adrian Bradley. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. And to find out more on raw reporting and many of the other subjects we talk about, please go to pressgazette.co.uk. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.